this morning. Hebrews 13. We'll pick up in verses 17 and go through verse 25. The last of five parts of what it means to be Christ's community. Well, really what we are called to be as Christ's community. Just a bit of context. As chapter 13 uh, started, the close was this idea that we are going to Mount Zion. We are going to a heavenly city. And the writer has compared a lot of the things in the Old Testament, uh, what they had in Moses to the, the New Testament. And he, he uses this beautiful image of Mount Zion uh, versus Mount Sinai. He says, we're not going to that mountain where the law was given that is fearful. We are going to Mount Zion. And then in chapter 13, it starts with this phrase, let brotherly love continue. And I really believe that the rest of chapter 13, it is the writer saying all that we have said about God and his superiority to every other possible religious system, even Judaism, he is so far superior, uh, and we have proved that. Now what do we do as a people, as a community? And it's important that we grasp that the the letters, that the scriptures are written to churches. They're written to a community of people. They were to be read by a community of people. They were to be understood by a community of people. And so there's really been five characteristics. The first one was that it's a community of love. Let brotherly love continue. And, And the community of love, God's family, God's church, to be a community of love. The second, verses four and five, is a community of contentment. He urges them. He says, be content with what you have. Don't fall in love with money. Be content in your marriage. Community of contentment, a community of truth was part three. Remember your leaders, he said, the ones who spoke the word of truth to you. Be critical of their lives, he says. Look at the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. And then a couple weeks ago, a community of worship a phrase that stuck out to me with that is, is when he says, those who serve the tent. He, he belittled the Old Testament worship in such a way that says, you're not, even, you're not serving God, you're serving a tent, you're serving a building. He said, they have no right to the altar from which we partake. So community of love, contentment, truth, worship. And lastly, in verses 17 to 25, a community of accountability. Uh, I thought of using the word a community of authority, um, but but accountability, I think, seems to fit better, and it's actually one of the words used in the text, so that's always safe. A community of accountability. Hebrews 13, verses 17 to 25. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. (coughs) Obey your leaders... And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, 
For I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. You know, I don't like to use the word deserve very much. Um, uh, I, I don't know why. I think, I think it, it just breeds this sense of uh, entitlement. And, I, and it, I just see it everywhere, you know, and I've talked to you about it before. You know, we all deserve a new plan uh, for our phone, and uh, we deserve a network. We were eating dinner, and the waitress came up to Tammy and brought her something, and she goes, this is what you deserve. And uh, it was just funny to me that, you know, we, we're in this, I deserve all this great stuff. But a church deserves to know its leaders. A church deserves to know who is leading, who is accountable, where are they going? What are they doing? And why are they doing it? A church deserves that. The community of God's people should count it as their right to know who is leading. And so um, the community of God's people is a community of accountability. And the gospel itself will produce the types of leaders we want. Now, as I start rolling out this sermon, the first point has eight uh, first point has 12 subpoints. Chiz has a, a more detailed outline. If you want a more detailed outline, instead of racing to write all 12 of those down, just put your hand up and Chiz will hand you a, a detailed outline. Where's Chiz? Oh, you already handed him out most of them. Okay. So um, anyway, I just thought I'd let you know that. I'm going to be racing through quite a bit as we close up. But the gospel produces the kind of leaders, and I say leaders that we want. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this great and amazing news, this news that though I am more sinful than I could have ever imagined, I am more loved by God than I could ever dared hope. That, the gospel summarized. I am sinful, yet in my sin, God loves me more than I could ever have hoped. Uh, that fact, resting on that fact, produces leaders which are different. They're different than the worldly leaders that we know. It produces also a different type of follower. The gospel produces a follower that we should become. Uh, a leader without the gospel tends to lead for their own ends, their own glory. It's tempted to use people for whatever, mean, or whatever means possible to benefit themselves. Sometimes they even serve people to receive just the accolades, some personal gain, motivations to prove themselves. I learned a lot about leadership from the worst leaders. <laughs> I remember working for some people that were absolutely horrible. Everyone in the store knew this person was wrong uh, and, and that person knew that everybody knew he was wrong, but he just couldn't admit it. So fragile the ego. That, that it was just, it was such an uncomfortable place. I think I learned more about leadership from bad leaders and thinking in my mind, if ever I'm put in this position, if ever I get, I will not do that to my people. Poor followers, we kind of follow for the same reason. I'll follow as long as it benefits me. I'll follow as long as it's worth it for me. Or I'll follow because I'm afraid. Or I follow because of money. Or I follow because of approval. 
The gospel gives us the motivation to be good leaders, to be good followers. And so it makes sense as he closes this letter, he's looking at these people and he himself, this writer, is appealing to the church and saying, as I, as I leave you as a church, remember that there's structure for you. Remember that there's leaders that God's appointed. Remember there's responsibilities for everybody in the community. I can't think of a better picture of a gospel-driven leader than what we get in 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to read this text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 9, it's the Apostle Paul and Timothy, and they're, they're talking about the relationship they had with that church. And he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, okay, so he's, he's writing a letter to a, to a church, you yourselves know that our coming to you wasn't in vain, but though he'd suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The apostle saying, we came from conflict because of the gospel. We came to Thessalonica, and we entered into more conflict because of the gospel. But why did we come? Because we love you. Why do we come? Because the gospel is so important that we will bear all sorts and manner of accusations, struggle, and trial be able to deliver this great message of the gospel. And he goes on, verse 3, for appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 9. Uh, I may have shared that with you before, but that's been mine and Tammy's verse when we started ministry. It's been our prayer. Lord, wherever you take us, will you make us the type of leader that's expressed here in 1 Thessalon Thessalonians? Someone who cares for people? doesn't just lead to get something out of it or to prove something. I love the way he writes, like a tender mother nursing her children, we were affectionately desirous. We didn't just share the gospel, but our very lives. Christ's community is a community of accountability. Um, so we're going to look at the characteristics of a gospel-equipped leader. We're going to run through this text quickly marking all the signs of what a, what a gospel-equipped leader should look like. And as I do that, I want you to think about all of these aspects should be a part of your life. It should be something you're working towards. It should be something you absolutely value. And also to understand that this letter and every New Testament book assumes people are in a church. They're written to the church in, the church that meets in this person's house, to a group. If, if Christianity is just me and Jesus doing what we want, listening to podcasts and singing the songs we want, and, and, and not really having any accountability, that's not, that's not at all what the New Testament puts out as Christianity. In fact, you won't grow apart from accountability. 
And so church is hard. Community is hard. We hurt each other all the time. We forget things. We say things. It's hard, but it's for our good. It's assumed. So we're going to look at the characteristics of a gospel leader, a gospel follower, and then we're going to look at this accountability structure in the Godhead. So characteristics of a gospel-equipped leader, verses 17 to 25. There are 12 things I pulled out from our text. And as I do this, I want you to think about this being the original pyramid scheme. Okay, the original pyramid scheme. It's gotten a bad rap. Uh, We don't allow any of that in our church. So just make sure no pyramids, no using our directory for your pyramid structure. We don't do that. But the church itself is a pyramid structure. Absolutely, God is at the top. And if you ever go through our membership class and I take out our book of church order, I open that front page and I say, here are the preliminary principles. Christ is the head of his church. Not the pastor, not the session, not the presbytery, not general assembly. Christ is the head of his church. And every leader is accountable to Christ. And so think about that in this idea of a, of a gospel-equipped leader. Twelve things. Number one, verse 17. Uh, the gospel-equipped leader keeps watch over the souls of others. Right? He is mostly concerned about the soul, the soul, the eternal soul of other people. Isaiah 62, 6, and Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 33, 1 Peter 5 and 2, they all, they all push the same idea that, that we are to charge over their souls, the eternal soul of a person. We think about things. We challenge our people. What do you do with your time? What do you love? What do you worship? Where are your affections directed? We shepherd the soul really in three ways. By teaching, by prayer, and by example. Not by force, not by embarrassing people. By teaching, by prayer, and by example. A gospel-equipped leader can't help but care over the souls of others. I loved my sales career. I loved buying new cars every six months or so. I, I, I loved making lots of money. And when I thought about going into ministry, my dad said, don't do it unless it's the only thing you can do. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it to please me. Don't do it to please God. Don't do it. do it. It's the only thing you can do. For someone to take a role as a shepherd, an officer in the church, you shepherd because it's all you can do. Those that I take through our officer training, like you should be doing it now. You know, it should be part of your life. You care for the souls of others. You hear things, you see things, and you can't help but care. You can't help but be drawn into it. And, and, and to wonder, uh, as we would for our own children, we see their affections moving in harmful ways. Secondly, the, the gospel-equipped leader knows that they must give account Uh, The text says that they are to give an account. They are under authority. They will answer to God for the care they have shown. Ezekiel again points this out. He's like, Ezekiel, you're a watchman and here's what you're to do. You're to sound the alarm when it's time to sound the alarm. And if they listen or they don't listen, that's not on you. But if you don't sound the alarm, it's on you. And the gospel-equipped leader says, I, I am under the authority of God. You know, I think of this. Sometimes a parent's judged by their child's behavior. 
Leaders get judged by the, by the behavior of those they're charged to shepherd. It doesn't mean that the church or the people are in some way our trophy that we present to God. Look what I've done. Do you approve of me now? But the way they shepherd, the way they care, the way they show authority, they are responsible to God. Thirdly, verse 17, they are to benefit the sheep. The leadership is for the good of the sheep. The shepherd does his job for the good of the sheep. It says in there, or it would be no advantage to you. The people of the church are supposed to receive an advantage from godly, gospel, grace-filled leaders. They are better off, they are protected, and they are directed properly under their care. Fourthly, leading brings them joy and delight. It is a delightful job for those who lead, and it should bring you joy and delight. Fifthly, in verse 18, a gospel-equipped leader demands or desires the prayers of others. They're humble, they're needy. It's a hard calling, it is a difficult job, and almost everybody who leads in the church faces calamity, trial, and hardship. They're targets of the evil one and evil forces. I warned, I warned people as they take roles in leadership that you will be challenged and tempted in deeper ways. The leader should ask for prayer, should be willing to ask for prayer, should humbly seek prayer, should ask the people that he leads or she leads to say, we need your help. I need God's direction. Sixthly, in verse 18, they're to lead with a clear conscience. The leader is to have a clear conscience. The writer here says that we might have a clear conscience. You know what that means? It means they can't let things go. I had a couple of really hard things last year we had to deal with, and I didn't want to deal with them. I had a couple of hard things in our presbytery. I shared some of that with you. Discipline cases, hard stuff, and I wish I wasn't on the committee. I wish I didn't have to hear it. I wish I didn't have to deal with it. But for conscience to be clear is to say, I will deal rightly with what God puts on my plate. It is important for me to act rightly. I must seek reconciliation among members, repentance and forgiveness even amongst the church. It means we do not let things go. Seventh, a gospel-equipped leader relies upon God. God is his prophet, his priest, and his king. He knows that the power for change is in God's hand. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace equip. It's God who is going to do it. It's what can give a leader peace and comfort when everything seems to be going wrong. No matter how hard you try, how hard you pray, what you've given, it seems it's falling on deaf ears. He relies on God. Eighth, he reminds them in the self of Jesus' person, work and being and is acting. The leader is always pointing people to the work of Christ. This is what Christ has done. This is how he is sufficient. Uh, he is also the way, but he's also uh, the answer, but he's also an example. He's constantly pointing to the work of Christ. Night, he strives to equip himself and others. He doesn't hold on to his knowledge. He doesn't hold on to his power, his gifts, his place, but is delighted to share and even see others surpass themselves in gifts and abilities. Now, I want you to stop there for just a second. Maybe you've worked for someone. 
I, I did a lot of stuff in sales and sales management. And it was funny, you know, a salesman would start to thrive. And he didn't want to share his secrets with the other salesmen. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want them to know. He wanted to be number one. You know, and, and it was, his, his desire wasn't that the company do well. His desire was that he would do well. And when the scoreboard came out, he didn't want to give his secrets away to somebody else. And I remember my dad telling me this, too, that when he was gone from the pulpit, he said, I always want the best person there. And he said he, he worked for a guy that, that when that guy was gone from the pulpit, he wanted the worst person there. He said, I, I want somebody there that, so everybody's really happy that I come back. I want somebody that's going to preach a sermon that's boring to them. And so when they comes back, he really, really, they really, really appreciate him. A gospel-equipped leader loves it and pushes others beyond himself or herself. Want to see other people thrive and grow beyond their own gifts and abilities. Tenth, verse 22 has strong relationship with the brothers. It's part of the accountability structure, but they have strong relationships. They're not out there on their own, doing their own thing. They are part of a community of brothers. Verse 23 and 24, a gospel-equipped leader loves time with God's people. What does he say? I shall see you. I'm, I'm longing to see you. I can't wait. If Timothy, I'm going to bring Timothy and we're going to see you. Greet all of your leaders. I can't wait to see you. Loves the people of God. Verse 25, a gospel-equipped leader lives and invites others into this river of grace. Lives with God's grace, invites others with God's grace. And again, we think about Christ here. He washed their feet. He fed them. He prayed for them. But he also corrected and he rebuked them. Called them his friends and ultimately gave up his life for them. This is who we look for in leading God's church. This is who we are to become. Every one of you is to become this. This is what we grow into. Someone ahead of you and someone behind you, I like to say. There's someone ahead of you that is leading you, and there's someone behind you that you are leading. The gospel-equipped leader. It's a sign of Christ's community. Secondly, the characteristics of the follower. I always think this is interesting because, um, you know, when, when time comes for college scholarships as a youth pastor, I always got these... Uh, um, applications to fill out for leadership. And one time I just wanted some college to say, we're going to give someone a scholarship for being a really good follower. <laughs> but Americans, we don't like followers. But, you know, we need followers. Uh, I remember one pastor telling me, hey, pastor, if you're the only one that believes in what you're doing, he goes, you're not a leader, you're out on a hike. <laughs> There's no one in your church that's following you. You're, like, you're, you're really not leading the church. You're just, you're just on a hike. Um, but the gospel tells us we can be followers. And again, it has a negative connotation to be a follower, right? Like you're afraid if your kid is just a follower, you know, just a follower. They're going to go along with whoever. But, but we're all followers of some type. Maybe we're more concerned about who our kid will follow and how they're following and what that will look like. 
Um, but the gospel gives us this ability to follow. It tells me I can, I can learn things from other people that may be younger than me, may have less schooling than me, a different gender than me. I can learn from people. I can humble myself. God may equip them to teach me things. I can, I can submit to people that are smarter than me. You know, the joke, Ricky Couch isn't here. We'll see if he watches it. But the joke was when I started teaching theology to all our officers, I told Ricky Couch I'm not teaching him because I wanted to know one thing more than him. <laughs> I said, he knows everything else. I was just like, Ricky, I'm not going to teach you theology. It's the only thing I have up on you. And I don't want to give it up. But it's that idea, isn't it? That, that uh, we, we, we want to want to prove ourselves by leading more than proving ourselves by following. Um, I put eight things in here. I think the book of Numbers, if you have trouble submitting to authority, um, sometimes I think it's because you see the, the frailty of the leaders, the fallenness of the leaders, and uh, every leader has flaws. And when we talk about leading in the church, we're not talking about the cultish Jim Jones, David Koresh type following. Uh, those, are, those are prime examples of not being the leader as God intended, not being a part of the brothers, not being accountable, being out on your own. We are, we are talking about following fallen people and knowing they're fallen. We're talking about following fallen people who know they're fallen and, and don't hold on to their decisions as some way of righteousness. Uh, a follower first is obedient. It says in verse 17, obey. Again, not without question, some cultish way, but obey. Life demonstrated in these leaders. It's worth imitating. So obey your leaders. Submit to your leaders, verse 17. Not especially easy today, millennial generation. It's never easy. It's easier if we have the type of leaders that we, we love and we trust but we're to submit to them. A gospel-equipped follower, also verse 17, brings joy to their leaders. They're a delight to lead. They listen. They respond. Fourthly, they believe and they benefit from the authority structure. I love having a session on Friday. Uh, sorry, on Thursday night, I, I went to the officer retreat for the church in Bartlesville that we helped uh, to plant out there and um, their officers were there and, and just in our time of prayer I talked to the pastor said isn't it isn't it wonderful that it's not all on you isn't it great uh, that you have this whole structure these people that represent the families that you're to shepherd they believe and they benefit from the authority structure uh, fifthly they pray for their leaders well, brothers and sisters you're part of three rivers please pray for me Please pray for your elders, your Sunday school teachers, your deacons, all those who serve, those who lead music. Pray for them. You will be equipped by them and by God in verse 21 to please God. Look at that, equipping with everything good. So the leader here, look at verse 21. The leader here equips everything good that you, the whole people, may do his work, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Our God is pleased when the followers submit and learn and serve and grow, it's pleasing to him. Seventh, the gospel-equipped follower is in community. They're in a community of people. Eighth, they live in and they invite others into this river of grace. 
Every Christian is called to follow. Every Christian is called to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Peter, put down your sword. Obey, submit. My way is different. Peter, get behind me. What type of follower are you? There is value in order and in structure. The telltale sign of God's abandonment of a people is in the book of Judges. Judges twice, it says, in the beginning and the end, it says this, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it is horrific. It's an NC-17 read. It's horrible, bloodthirsty, terrible. In those days, Israel had no king. There was no leadership. There was no structure. There was no one holding the people accountable. The tribes all went on their own. People went all on their own. It was anarchy. Everyone did, as it says, as they saw fit. Find yourself a place, a church, where you can follow. Lastly, I just want to talk in verses 20 and 21 uh, this Christian accountability demonstrated in God. And, and I think if you're a kid at Three Rivers, you've probably memorized this. This is the benediction I use probably 90% of the time. Verses 20 and 21. Uh, look at this in the Godhead, in the Trinity. Now may the God of peace, the Father, the Father called the God of peace. And what did He do? He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus submits Himself to the Father. I mean, the beautiful prayer, not my will, but yours, O Father, be done. Father, is there a way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. There is no way that the Son is any less than the Father. There is no way that the Son is of any less value. Even in our text, it talks about the glory of Jesus Christ. The Father sets in place this beautiful covenant creation, decides to save a chosen people for himself at great cost. The Son submits to this will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit in this text is the one equipping us all by faith. And where does it end? It ends in verse 25. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. There's still a few of our old t-shirts out that we started with. Grace changes everything. The book of Hebrews, this letter, if you sat down and read it, start to finish, take you about an hour. The writer here says, I've written you this short letter. I want to remind you of these things. And then he leaves us with the grace of God. Now, I've talked about this often as the river of grace. And I want us to think about that as individuals and as a church. The beauty of the river is that it, 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 it moves as it will. It swallows who goes in, and we don't always know what's around the next bend. Many of us as Christians, we want a canal of works. That's what we want. We want God to put us in a canal. It's safe. We, 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 we know that if we paddle, we've got some control. We know where it's going to go. We can see. And, and we have control. And yet living with the community of God, it really is, it, it, it's like a roaring river that it swallows us up. We pull one another into it. 
We're not sure what's around the next bend, but we know he is with us. We know that ultimately it's dumping into the ocean of God's love. And the writer here, as he leads the people, he's saying this, this grace of God, what's been demonstrated through this whole book. Think about what we've learned about grace of God. Verse 9 of chapter 2. Jesus, he says, by the grace of God, tasted death for us. Chapter 4, 16. We are now boldly to approach the throne of grace. God's unmerited love. We are boldly to approach it because of what Christ has done. And in chapter 10, that warning about the apostates, it says they fail to obtain the grace of God. Even in, uh, earlier in chapter 13, our hearts strengthened by grace. The river of grace has river guides. You can tell those raft guides in Colorado, can't you? I mean, they're just, they're, they're all cut from the same cloth, aren't they? They have a beard, they have a certain tan, they're just, they're cut from the same, same cloth. Uh, the river guides. Our God gives us leaders to guide us in that river of grace, and we're to listen to them, we're to submit to them. And there are times, if you've ever done any of that whitewater rafting, where it seems like what they're telling you to do is the wrong thing. I remember, I remember vividly we were rafting in Nepal, and I thought, well, we're in Nepal, and so I'm sure they don't have all the rules they have in the U.S. of A. Our rafts had duct tape on them, you know. <laughs> they weren't the self-bailing ones that we had on the Colorado River. And immediately we hit something, and boom, one of the, one of the I remember reaching down to grab this, the, the nurse, the nurse that we brought with us. She had the backpack with all the medications and all the forms in the river, I went to grab her, and it just sucked her away. And the raft guy's like, wait for it, wait for it. And he took us to a spot. He's like, paddle, 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 paddle. I'm like, she's in, she's in here. Paddle, paddle, paddle. Paddle over, she pops up <laughs> over here. Our God gives us guides in the river of grace. He absolutely gives us his word. He absolutely gives us his spirit. But he absolutely expects us to be in his church. Pray for your leaders. Submit to them. Obey them. But grace to all. Well, brothers and sisters, if, if anybody who leads in this church is not graceful to you, please report them. Please report me. Please report Tammy. Please report him. It is to be the mark of the people of God. People overwhelmed that God would stoop to save them. The people longing to share that great news with someone else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter and the study that we've had. and How the, the writer can, can so confidently say that the Son is superior to any other created thing in heaven or on earth that he holds all things together by the word of his power. That the Son sits at the Father's hand now and intercedes for us. What a great comfort to a church and to a people that even now the prayers of Jesus himself on our behalf are coming up before you. 
Oh, Father, we pray that we would be a church known by grace. And it would be a grace that is honest, that is truthful, that has real depth to it. Help us, Lord. Protect us from leaders and followers who would seek their own glory in their own way. And false shepherds who would feed themselves on the sheep. False teachers who would long to build up a following from themselves. Oh, Lord, that in all things you would receive the glory to your name. Now, Father, take these elements, a beautiful sign of your grace to us, the body and the blood of your Son, the bread and the wine. And will you set them apart, Father, to nourish our souls, that we might be assured that Christ is ours forevermore, that we have been tied to you by faith and promise, that nothing will separate us from this love. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.